0: Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com
1: this is your moment your time to shine
0: Hi, I'm Molly John Fast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Ron DeSantis has signed a bill ending permanent alimony. We're back from vacation. Did you have a great vacation? We did not really do anything, but we had a great vacation, and we have a fabulous show for you today. Christina Ramirez, president of Next Gen America talks to us about young voters, so important in the 2024 election. Then we'll talk to the Enigma of Clarence Thomas author, Corey Robin, about the latest fuckery in the Supreme Court. But first we have the host of the enemies list, the one, the only, fan favorite, the Lincoln Project's Rick Wilson. Welcome back to Fast Politics, fan favorite, personal friend of mine, the one, the only, Rick Wilson.
3: Molly John Fast, how are you on this fine (laughs) Sunday afternoon?
0: Look, it's a weekend of a little bit of fuckery, a little bit of craziness, some fuckery. Republican candidates pretending everything is fine. And this is just everything is fine,
3: Molly. What's the problem? What's the problem? What do you mean? A normal. There's only 71 felony counts.
0: (laughs) I mean, he's twice impeached. He's. Twice indicted, federally, state level. I mean, you know, he's just a normal Republican candidate, and and he might not even
3: get the nomination, right? But Molly, but Molly, you're ignoring the national crisis. Joe Biden wore a pair of swim trunks with turtles on them,
0: and he wore <laughs> sneakers with tiny socks.
3: Yeah, I'm sure you're not paying attention to the crisis this has caused around the world because
0: Beachwear Gate. Because
3: Beachwear Gate is clearly it clearly says so much about America. right now. Obviously, it's a sign that that he's trying to show solidarity with the global forces of cuckery.
0: Here's the problem with Beachweargate.
3: Aside from all the other problems. Besides
0: besides for how stupid this is. I mean, he was on the beach. He was not wearing a shirt. I guess that's the problem. Biden was on the beach in Delaware. There were, uh, the RNC posted the picture and said, Joe Biden has taken 7,000 vacation days or whatever, 34, whatever the numbers were. But here's the Mm -hmm. problem. He, I mean, unless something enormous happens, he will be running against a guy who basically lived in Palm Beach for the winter.
3: Yes. The vacation days argument does not work. (laughs) Are you sure? I hate to disappoint all the Trump world political geniuses, and by political geniuses, I mean fucking morons. (laughs) But this is not an argument that is going to work for y'all. It does not work. I'm sorry. I know that most of you are basically window licking people who, who, who like to have your gruel served, served at room temperature, but it doesn't work. This is not going to solve your political problem that your, that your, that your candidate is a goddamn weird Palm Beach, 50% of the time spends on the, on the golf course.
0: Who
1: does crimes? Who, who oh, does crimes? Oh, and who does crimes? Who does crimes?
3: And I'm sorry, call me crazy. But the other thing they tried to jack into some sort of like major scandal this week was that some moron (laughs) left a itty bitty bag of cocaine somewhere in the visitor center of the White House. And I'm like, oh, yeah, come on. As I said to somebody, I was like, Oh, it was Laura about Laura Trump. Laura Trump was like, I'm like, listen, what did you think that Don Jr. just had bad pollen allergies? Get the fuck out of here.
0: <laughs> well, I want to talk about the cocaine, cocaine gate. Cocaine found in the West Wing, an area where people tour I was there a couple weeks ago. It's not mine. It's not I'm sure since clean. I was 19. I know you're clean. But I do want to say it's not Joe Biden's. We can say we know it's not Joe Biden's. I'm sorry, but there are many. There have been many presidents in my lifetime where we could not... Totally for sure say that some presidents that you might have even had relationships with. I'm just saying.
3: I will tell you this. I think there's a 0% chance that W did cocaine while he was in the White House.
0: I'm not accusing anyone, but I'm just saying that, you know, this is a president where we know he doesn't drink, he's incredibly old, he doesn't do cocaine. If nothing else, we have that.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure the big the big drug bust on Joe Biden's probably the occasional B12 shot. You
0: know? Right, exactly. <laughs> he's hot. It- up on exactly. B twelve, <laughs> <laughs> and I think I mean I think look B twelve is a very serious drug, and if you find it, call the police right away. But <laughs> I want to get back to this. Another thing that happened this weekend was Ron DeSantis, as you know him, Meepo Ron. Ron DeSantis. Ron uh, DeSantis. Ron De, Ron De as Jason Miller calls him in Playbook this weekend has just been skirting along the, skidding along the bottom. I have, I'm making, by the way, for those of you, because this is an audio podcast and we don't have a video component yet, do you want a video component? Send Jesse Cannon messages on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) You can find his Instagram. It just takes a little bit of doing, but I'm sure you can find it. So we're skidding along the bottom here, Ron DeSantis, He says, in fact, he, you know, he gives a mainstream media quote. He, you know, he avoids the mainstream media because he hates the uh, liberal media.
3: That's a narrative, Molly. That's just a narrative. Yes. He says that every time he gets any kind of question (laughs) or criticism. That's a narrative. I'm like, no, moron. It's a fucking question. Jesus.
0: But also, it, it does happen to be a narrative that is correct.
3: Some nar- some narratives happen to be <laughs> true, Ron.
0: That's right. I mean, I think this is a narrative, and it's a narrative for a reason, because it's what's happening.
3: Right. A narrative is a description of the events as they occur, Ron. Perhaps <laughs> this is what's occurring. You're getting your shit handed to you, because yes. as a candidate, you are a like 100 hitter. You're a bad candidate. God.
0: He's a bad candidate. Thank God he's a bad candidate because he's a very good autocrat.
3: The interesting thing in Florida, I'll give your audience a little bit of a little bit of dish.
0: Yes, give us some Florida GOP dish. Since you know a lot of Florida GOP.
3: I was with a bunch of lobbyists last night in the great state of Florida. Again. Again. And the
0: night before. And, and
3: the night before. But last night, and it's interesting because suddenly people are chit-chatting again. Basically, the feeling is this. Ron DeSantis bet the entire house and everybody wanted to stay safe from his budget vetoes, right? Because in Florida, right. the governor has a line-out of veto, but only for the budget. So he can fuck people really badly. And, and DeSantis went ahead and did that to anybody who endorsed Trump or wasn't like cooperative enough with him or wasn't, wasn't like his little bitch boys. Well, here's the thing. This the 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 political climate you know nothing nothing turns politicians to hate more than weakness, and the perception right. that this guy is suddenly weak and pathetic and lame and not the twenty seven foot tall solid titanium giant killer that he pretended to be is biting in. yeah, we're also hearing out in the rest of the country, not just in Florida. So by the way, what'll happen is he'll come back here and try to this try this strong arm shit again, and people will be like, no. Fuck off. <laughs> I would like my donations from Disney to come back, you know? And a lot of these guys get a lot of money from Disney, okay? Right. And, and from all these other people that he fucked over. And I just want to tell your audience one more time. Ron DeSantis yeah. just signed a bill. If you want to if you want to talk about a guy who, who is so fucking disconnected, there's an industry in Florida called the phosphate industry. They mine phosphate. It produces in the in the course of doing this a low-level radioactive waste. Okay. Now, radioactive waste is bad all around, low level. But still, he signed a bill allowing the phosphate industry to now use the radioactive waste that they produce in building roads in the state of Florida. What? So, once again, he signed a bill to allow the phosphate industry to use the radioactive waste that they produce- in building roads in the state of Florida. I'm sorry, because what dirt is too fucking expensive? Because concrete is what well, you so you have to have radioactive waste in the work. I mean, we were already a state full of enough fucking mutants without radioactive roads.
0: <laughs> I mean, think about what's gonna happen to your alligators.
3: Right? I mean, those some bitches are gonna get to be like 40 feet long and they're going to have conversations, they're going to get opposable thumbs. Right.
0: I feel like I saw this movie.
3: The whole thing is it's it's like a it's like a, a Mad Max radioactive waste shit show. But he's just so bad. He's so bad at governing. He's good at being an authoritarian punk and he's good at hurting people.
0: Right. I want to pull on a thread here mm-hmm. and not plug my threads account. So Elon Musk, because I think these two things sort of relate to each other. Elon Musk decided he was going to buy Twitter and sort of remake the mainstream media, right? I mean, that was what was coming from behind. He said, we don't need this stupid NPR. We don't need this stupid, you know, mainstream. We don't need Vanity Fair. What we need are citizen journalists like, you know, these sort of disgraced crypto bros or the Steens. Those are going to be our journalists. We're going to remake the mainstream media. And uh, he got going on it. He got all his tech bros in and it didn't work, right? I mean, it just didn't work.
3: Call me crazy. <laughs> Call me crazy that the decline of Twitter and the arrival of Tucker Carlson happened almost simultaneously.
0: You saw Tucker's numbers have gone way down too.
3: I have. And when Tucker's numbers started to tank, it wasn't just that he didn't have the Fox ecosystem. It's that the place he chose to do it has been so fundamentally broken by Elon Musk's terrible business decisions. The fact that he believed that he was going to, I'm mean, going to level the playing field between, <laughs> as I said uh, on on Threads today, like an account called, you know, Cuckmaster six six six, versus, <laughs> you, you know, you or me or anybody else who's in media, journalism, politics, who who is actually you know talking by and large and broadly about ideas and and occurrences and events and news the fact that he deliberately algorithmically elevated the worst right. fucking trolls in in the world and 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 set up a system where if you were a mouth breathing mildew trailer bubba fuck <laughs> mm-hmm, from mm-hmm, ass lick mm-hmm, arkansas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you could get a blue We're really
0: getting peak Oh, we in are your, right continue. now because
3: i am on my yeah. shit if if <clears throat> you gave that person a blue check mark and therefore algorithmically elevated them for eight dollars a month the idea he had that is it, it wouldn't affect the rest of the human beings who use twitter and they all have basically said God, this place stinks like a damn dead hooker in a in the trunk of a Pinto. It's just oh, awful. Twitter is it's insufferable these days because the the algorithmic elevation of the worst of the worst was done to troll people like us. Okay.
0: It reminds me of Clubhouse. When I joined Clubhouse, it had this sort of, you know, you would go, you'd hear occasionally a celebrity talk yeah, and and you'd think, oh, this is pretty interesting. And then what happened was Clubhouse decided they would just make all their investors huge. So they got this sort of supported and then it became all their investors who nobody really cared about because they're not famous or notable people. But I want to tie this. So Elon tried to come after the mainstream media and, and, you know, there was nothing wrong with innovation per se. But what I want to come back to is Ron DeSantis. DeSantis Mm -hmm. had a similar kind of uh, thing where he would not give interviews to anyone who wasn't a sort of astroturfed fake site. Do you think that has ultimately actually hurt him?
3: Yes. Look, here's the thing. He in Florida in particular will not speak to Traditional media. He won't talk to the Associated Press or the right. San Times, Miami Herald, Orlando Sentinel. He won't talk to reporters. He does not talk to right. them. He will not talk to Peter Schorsch of Florida Politics, the largest political website in Florida by an order of magnitude. <laughs> he will, however, talk to like real Florida MAGA red state <laughs> red <laughs> state <laughs> <laughs> voice <laughs> and you know Epstein Today News <laughs> and and all these <laughs> like you know all these crazy ass. Edge case. There's one called Florida's Voice, which is run by right. a bunch of people who are like, you know, Ben Shapiro is my role model. <laughs> right. It's just, yeah. it's yeah. just amazing. And, and the problem with it all is that that it made him weak. It made him right. a weaker candidate on the stump because you know what? You don't actually get to go and play the game by your own rules when you're campaigning for president. There are actual right. reporters there, and if you stu- if you don't answer their questions. You know what they're going to do? They're going to report whatever the fuck they want about you. <laughs> and they're going to report the truth <laughs> because DeSantis right. made himself weak. He made himself into, into a, a an athlete who was not trained for the business of politics in America in 2023. And you have got to be able to go out and take a punch and give a punch. You've got to be able to go out and right. answer questions. And you've got to be able, more than anything, to understand that the fantasy bubble you create in your head is not real. The, the the line of BS you're selling yourself or your donors or your or your or your maniacal wife um, is not real. And so so th- as he's collided more and more with the fact that his numbers have gone down. Remember, when he started Right. He was the hope. He was the great hope. He was the golden child. Right, right, right. It was basically an, an our survey about. A year ago now, well, nine months ago, nine months ago, the first, I think, nine months ago is when we started paying attention, like, with our big survey. Trump was at 51, and he was at 36. Right. And it was, like, could happen. And now Trump is at, like, in our numbers, at, like, 56, and DeSantis is at 14. What What's happening? Three <laughs> things are happening. Tell us. First off, there's an old phrase in, in in advertising that you can't sell bad dog food with good advertising. Because the dogs don't see the advertising, but they do taste the food. So you can go out and pretend Ron DeSantis is the second coming and he's this great leader and all this other stuff. But people have met him before. But when you sit him down in a room and ask him questions and he gets pissy and cranky and weird because he's weird it starts to drop off. When the mega donors are in these rooms and they're like, yes, obviously well, what will happen is he'll get a $100 million, that it will clear the field. Donald Trump will realize that Ron DeSantis is so powerful and he'll leave the race. It's all fantasy.
0: It is a very nice fantasy for them. I mean, not for us and not for American democracy, but it's nice that they felt they could still love a candidate who wasn't Donald Trump and who was so bad at retail politics. I want one more minute. I know we're doing this too long long, but you and I really do truly hate DeSantis. Truly, Hate
3: is the wrong word. No, it's not. I actually hate him because he's a shitbird. He's a bad person and a bad candidate.
0: I just want to say that I thought he was a one really dangerous guy. And so I feel very relieved that he's crashing and burning because I think he's a really scary guy. But I just, I want to say one last thing about him, which is that video, and it struck me, I think I've mentioned this before, Jesse, tell me if I have, actually don't, it's fine. But when people met him and he said, okay, like, hi, I'm Joe. And he said, okay, Mm -hmm. like that is not, good retail politics.
3: No, he's not good. At, look, look, set aside my visceral dislike for him because he is what I call an unlimited government conservative. He believes in using right. the power of the state to hurt his political enemies. And I and right. as a as a person who believes that the state is is a source many times of danger and overreach that's not even a mistake. That's a lot of times it overreaches by mistake and stupidity and right. whatever. This is a deliberate embrace of a philosophy of using the power of the government to harm people. And he's done yeah. it a lot. It's not just Disney, yeah. it's not just teachers, it's not just drag queens. This is a guy trying to use the power of his office to cause fear. Pain, intimidation, yeah. and hurt, and I think that's the lowest sort of political traveler. That comeuppance he's experiencing is very satisfying. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to take my eyes off him yet. Trump could still, you know, have, have a have an aneurysm. But I will also say he is he is now also attracting something that that everyone who's in real politics has, has observed before. All these mega donors are calling him now all the time and say, "Fix your campaign. Fix your campaign."
0: Yes. That must be a fun experience. Have you had that experience ever?
3: You know, Molly, I have been on both ends of that equation. I've been on the I've been on the end of the equation where they where I'm the guy who gets brought in after they fix the campaign, and I've been the guy on the other side of it.
0: Not a good feeling, right? No, oh no, no, it's not a good feeling. <laughs> that's not a good phone call.
3: It's a dangerous phone call because if you don't turn it around immediately, the money cuts right. off. And and by the way, that's right. what's happening with the big guys right now. There's a slow drain off of him with the with the major candidates. Some of them are like, Well, I guess I'll give Christie some money. But Jeff Rowe, right. the guy he brought in to run <laughs> oh, his well, super PAC.
0: The guy that Puck News made famous for some unknown reason.
3: Yes. Who spent a hundred million dollars of donor money last year on, on on eleven candidates and elected one of them. So good ratio, bro. Right. My understanding is that after the weird serial killer, homoerotic Ron DeSantis.
0: Yes, they were talking. So, for those who do not completely know Rick Wilson shorthand, we are talking about a video that Ron DeSantis's campaign posted that was very anti gay, but also very
3: sexy, creepily homoerotic. Yes. And, and associated him with criminals and Patrick Bateman, the famous serial killer.
0: Yes. It was a very strange video. It was very strange. Yeah. My
3: understanding is that Casey Desantis's reaction to that was not good. <laughs> and by not good, I mean, I'm going to use a word that is not in common parlance anymore, but it was used when they were tearing whales apart on ships. The word is flinzing. flensing. <laughs> F-L-E-N-S-I-N-G. Flensing. I understand that there was that there was some flensing afoot during that entire period, because here's the dirty secret of Casey DeSantis. She's playing the role of moms for liberty, like – minivan Taliban, all that other stuff. But she desperately, desperately, desperately wants to go to Washington, D.C. and be invited to to swank little soirees in the homes of Temi Haddad and Juliana Glover. And she has the opera gloves for it. She wants the opera gloves. She wants the Kennedy Center. She wants to be invited to Fashion Week. She wants all that stuff. That's what she wants. And now she's starting to realize that the, that the path they're pursuing to get there. There's, There's no way her to there. center back. There's no way to swing back to the middle after you've been somebody who's, a, who's like, we're going to run an ad that Fascist. says we're going to end the gay way of life. Oh, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound bother bothersome at all.
0: <laughs> Rick
4: Wilson, yes. will you please come back very soon?
3: You know I will.
4: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up.
0: Today we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. When I first heard about it, I thought it's about time. This makes sense. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in for savings. Let's say you, your spouse, or kids see the doctor or other medical provider. When your claims come in, HealthLock automatically renews them and flash. Any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. So you pay only what you owe. This is your money, your saving. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped members save more than $130 million. I get it, medical billing errors can happen, but you should be able to pay with confidence. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another HealthLock Christina Ramirez is president at NextGen America. Welcome to Fast Politics, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. Can you explain to us what NextGen is?
5: Yeah, so Next Gen America is the country's largest youth vote organization. In the last presidential race in 2020, we helped mobilize one in nine young voters across the country, leading to the largest youth voter turnout in American history and helping elect Joe Biden and send Donald Trump packing, we focus on young people because they are the largest, the most progressive and the most diverse generation in American history. And we believe they have the power to remake American politics and save democracy.
0: So explain to me what that looks like.
5: Yeah. So we organize young people anywhere and everywhere we can. So we will in this upcoming presidential race, we will be on hundreds of college campuses and battleground states talking to young voters, making sure they're registered, get them pledged to vote. We will have a volunteer army of close to 30,000 volunteers that will help us send tens of millions of calls and texts to young people in states. They'll even hop on dating apps because we can search by age, geography, and um, you can even see people's political persuasions. And we will also organize with and mobilize influencers across the country, including college athletes, to mobilize young people So anywhere and everywhere that young people are, both in real life and online, we will try and be to make sure that they make their voices heard and
0: turn out in record numbers. Say more about the dating apps.
5: During COVID, when everything went virtual, there was a huge increase in people using dating apps. So a 90% increase in people using dating apps. And we have always been trying to figure out new ways to reach young people. Where are young people congregating? Where are they meeting? And so... We knew that they were meeting on dating apps and dating apps in some ways you would think were set up just for organizing because we can search again by age. If we want to find someone, a young voter in Wisconsin, we can search by gender. We can talk to them also if we want to talk to young queer voters. you know, Right now is Pride Month, for example, and 93 percent of young queer voters, of which one in four young people identify as queer voted for progressive candidates. We are an explicitly progressive organization. So our volunteers will have real life conversations in dating apps, telling young people about what their voting plans are, making sure they're ready to vote. You no, know, we're not trying to catfish anyone. No one shows up to their first date and surprise right. it's a polling location <laughs> or anything. But we will talk to people about issues that they care about and just make sure that they're ready to vote in the upcoming elections.
0: Explain to me a little bit about what you are going to do in 24 and what that's going to look like.
5: I think everybody knows this is going to be a huge, huge election. Our organization has been around for 10 years. We were started a decade ago with the premise that if we could organize young people to scale, we could take on one of the biggest challenges that our country faces, which is the climate crisis. And I'll tell you, 10 years ago, most political strategists, thought it was a waste of time and money to focus on young people. And it's 10 years later, we've had three consecutive elections with historic youth voter turnout. And we want to keep up that momentum at NextGen America. We endorsed Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and we endorse them because no administration has done more to deliver on progressive policy change when we were talking about climate change, student debt, gun safety reform, gay marriage. And the list goes on. That is why we endorse this administration so early, because for us, it's not enough about a party or any single one politician. It really comes down to policy that helps make young people's lives better. So we're going to be doing everything we can to talk to and connect to young people to make sure they know what's at stake this election and help millions of them. We will be contacting 10.5 million young people roughly across nine states to try and turn them out this election.
0: What do you think? I mean, it's interesting because it's like you've seen we've seen a lot of people on the right. They know that young people, they are Democrats. They do not respond to this sort of Republican oligarchy. And you're seeing like a real beginnings of anxiety when it comes to conservatives. I'm just curious, like, this is a theory you guys have had for a while, but it's only recently that that young people have really kind of delivered. Why do you think that is?
5: Well, there's several. It is true. Republicans are now reaching fever pitch about young voters because they are voting so overwhelmingly for Democrats. And that is not historically the case. You know, up until about 2004, Republicans and Democrats pretty evenly split the youth vote. And today you see that young people you count Gen Z and millennials, they are now the largest voting block, and they are clearly repulsed by the Republican Party. And the Republican Party has a few choices. They can change their policies to answer to a very progressive generation. Of course, they're not doing that. Instead, they're going full throttle on policies to further exclude a very young queer, a very diverse generation, and also make it much harder for them to vote. But like I said, our organization has been around for 10 years. There have been other projects, but there's been very little investment from progressives or conservatives into young voters. And so it's taken time. In some of the states that we're in, we've seen the youth vote share increase over six years, eight years, some claims 10 years, because this is an electorate where a lot of candidates and campaigns are not going to put the money and time into talking to young voters because they are new or infrequent voters. And so what we've been able to prove in a place like Pennsylvania, where we've been for since 2016, is that if you invest... And start registering and engaging young voters early that over time they will turn out that it's not a question. This is not young. People are not apathetic. This is actually the most civically engaged generation in American history. It's about putting time and money into young people. And then again, delivering on progressive policy, because that is ultimately what young people care about. They are voting overwhelmingly for Democrats. But a huge percentage of them actually see themselves as independents, even though how they vote is not necessarily the case.
0: So basically, you're saying if you treat young people the way you treat other voters. Right. If you. you, They'll behave the way other voters behave.
5: Right. If you spend time and money engaging with young people, guess what they turn out? And there's a whole lot of young voters. Like I said, there's 70 million young eligible voters from when uh, Biden and Harris took the presidency in 2020, by 2024, there will be 17 million young people that will have turned 18 in that time period. That is a huge number of young people that have become eligible to vote just in this short time period.
0: So I want to ask you, one of the things that the Pundit Industrial Complex is is quite passionate about is this idea that That even though Biden's been this wildly successful president and he's achieved a lot of progressive victories and infrastructure and this and that, that people think he's too old. What do you think about that? You
5: know, there's several things. One, I think for young people, we get asked this question all the time. And I like to remind political pundits that it is true that in 2020, Joe Biden was not the candidate of young voters. But it was the guy that was actually even older than him that was the candidate, which was Bernie Sanders. So it really had nothing to do with age. It had everything to do with progressive policy. And what drives me crazy about the political pundit class that talks about Joe Biden's age is that they often forget to mention Trump's age. I mean, he is no spring chicken himself. And to me, honestly, it wouldn't matter if Donald Trump and I think a lot of young people understand this, too. If Donald Trump was 50 years younger than Joe Biden, because his policies feel straight out of the 1950s, that whether you are talking about women's rights, abortion, LGBTQ equality, climate change, gun safety legislation, race in America on any single issue, it is day and night between the two candidates. And we don't want to go backwards. Young people do not want to go backwards. We want to go forward. And there is only one candidate on the ticket in the Democratic Party that wants to do that.
0: One of the things we're seeing conservatives do is uh, try, I mean, I think they're pretty convinced that Donald Trump is going to be the GOP candidate. And I think they're pretty worried. One of the things we're seeing is they're trying to prop up third party candidates like RFK Jr. I mean, do you think that uh, young people, that 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 kind of anti-vax, anti-science stuff speaks to young people?
5: I don't know that it, I, I don't the the number. Right. When we talk about young people, young people are not a monolith. But like, what are the, the key patterns? Right. Young people overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. So, you know, depending on the race or state, you're talking at least like 62 to sometimes even like 75 percent of the people in certain races have been voting for Democrats. That's how John Fetterman got elected and flipped that seat in the Senate. That's how we were able to protect Warnock's seat in Georgia and Senator Cortez Matsto in Nevada. Young voters really came through. The idea, right, is that they can shave off margins um, with third party candidates. I think the other thing is that where I do think Democrats worry me is that, one, they may not invest in young people because they're going to be an afterthought. They know they need them. But they also still have long-held beliefs about young people that are untrue, right? That young people don't turn out, that they're not reliable. Or also, as young people get older, they get more conservative anyway, which is actually the data saying Mm -hmm. is not true, especially for older millennials. And then I think we have to really take seriously, even more so than the third-party candidates, is voter suppression that will be targeted at young people. I am very worried about local county election administrators In Republican places where there are big colleges, all of a sudden when they announce where they're going to have polling locations in 2024 before the election, and there's going to be a bunch of counties that no longer have those college polling locations available. And that is very diffuse. It's very difficult to attack through litigation and fight back against. And so we're going to have to have a whole strategy as progressives about what we do and how we do rapid response. Not if that happens, but when that happens.
0: Right. It makes sense. I want to ask you, what are the things that kind of keep you up at night? At NextGen,
5: we have always said we don't put our hope in any single one politician or party. We put our hope in America's young people. But it very, very much keeps me up and worries me, one, how Republicans and the far right will attack young voters power. Two, that we have made big progress on climate change, the most existential crisis of our time, and that if Republicans gain power, they will roll back the gains we have made. We need to continue to make gains, not be fighting to hold on to what little we've gained. And the last part is that we've also seen what they have done long term. The fact that, you know, this coming week is the year, uh, a year to the date when we saw the reversal and overturning of Roe v. Wade and abortion access limited. To tens of millions of people, and going back fifty years overnight, they can continue to do that on many issues. And so, I think this is a very pissed off generation, as well. They should be. They are exercising their power, but it worries me that what, how far Republicans will go to limit that power, and also how sleepy sometimes Democrats may remain to invest in that power.
0: When you're sort of looking on the horizon, what states do you feel like Democrats could sort of change the narrative? And
5: there has been big shifts, right? Like we look at Georgia, we look at Arizona, Arizona, a very young state. A lot of what changed Arizona, which I don't think it's told enough in the narrative, is especially a lot of young Latinos organizing in that state, building that electorate over time. And then. The big battleground states we know will prove in 2024. We know we need to be in Pennsylvania. We know we need to be in Arizona, Georgia and Wisconsin, Nevada. But also, where can we shift the map long term? Had we gone back six years ago and said to Democratic political strategists that Georgia was going to be a bellwether and be able to determine the outcome of the rest of the country for the Senate, for the presidency, people would have laughed at that. And that shifted because of people like Stacey Abrams of NSA UFOT, who did the hard work of registering and organizing voters that most people ignored. So, you know, I also live in my home state of Texas, where it's the third youngest state in the country. One in three eligible voters is under the age of 30. It's also one of the most diverse places. We have to be willing to make long-term investments in changing states and understand that demographics are not destiny. They are simply a core ingredient in the recipe for change.
0: Do you think Texas is a
5: pipe dream for Democrats? One hundred percent. I do not think that. Um, I think it's a big state and it's a big prize and that Republicans know they need to hang on to it. Again, that's why I say demographics are not destiny. But like in Texas, half of the people turning 18 are Latino. If you talk about and then if you look at the fact that only Utah and Alaska are younger and that you have, Hundreds of thousands of people moving into the state from more progressive states. California, for example, there are big shifts happening, but you have to make investment in those demographics. And so there has been a lot won and shifted in Texas. But I think where we fail on the left is we expect things to change overnight. And we also don't often invest in the exact communities we need to change, especially, you know, when you talk about the Latino population, which is critical to changing Texas. The fact that, you know, our most common age for white Americans is uh, age 55 in the United States. For African-Americans, it's 27. For Latinos, it's age 11. So if you want to change Texas, you have to invest in young people of color. And guess which voters are the ones that Democrats and all and all candidates invest the least in
0: young people of color. I'm oh, so interesting. And what would you say to people who say that like the Latino vote Democrats are having trouble with the Latino vote?
5: Yeah, I I think about, you know, in my state, especially in South Texas, gets pointed to in Florida. That's right. The Latino vote is not monolithic. People ask me all the time, you know, in Texas, are Latinos, Republicans or Democrats? And I say we're neither. We're poor. And who comes and speaks to our pain and what we face in our pain will win our vote. So in the Valley, you have counties where, during the Democratic primary long term held by Democrats. Bernie Sanders won those counties hands down during the 2020 Democratic primary because he spent a lot of time and money talking about $15 an hour, supporting unions, making sure there was access to higher education for everyone. Basic bread and butter issues to make people's lives better. And then you had Trump come in and win because Trump put in money, I think. You can see it as there is the, still Latinos are overwhelmingly Democratic, but there is a portion of the Latino vote for up that's up for grabs. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that that means Democrats have to do a better job and that they have to lead with strong economic populist messaging because most Latinos make um, under uh, are the ethnic group that are least likely to make a more than $15 an hour are the least likely to have health care, the least likely to go to college. So speak to that pain and you will win the Latino vote.
0: You know, we have this very tight labor market. We have children working in factories. We have Republicans trying to ease child labor laws so that they can have children working in factories. Are you surprised that there isn't more interest in a path to citizenship?
5: So I spent my first job, I spent a decade across Texas organizing mostly undocumented construction workers and I spent years believing. I remember participating in the 2006 mega marches. And for people that don't remember, those were up until the the uprisings that happened around Black Lives Matter. Those were the largest marches that had happened in U.S. history and strikes of day-long strikes by millions of undocumented workers striking. And I believed when I was young that with so many people striking and so many people mobilizing that of course there would have to be action. And instead we saw... Republican states, local municipalities and even some Democrats go after the immigrant community and pass really draconian policy. It's in the economic best interest of this country to create a pathway to citizenship, but it is not in the best interest of big business to do so. I saw from 10 years of organizing undocumented construction workers who were often not paid for their work, who were often left injured on the job, that the status quo was good for business. It wasn't good for American born workers. It wasn't good for immigrants. But you know who benefited were the largest construction companies in my home state, the largest contributor to the Republican Party, also happened to be the largest employer of undocumented labor, which was the construction industry. So I think we have to remember why we are where we are, but there's still a lot more organizing we have to do. And that's why building political power is ultimately, I think, how we will win citizenship, because the economic reality that benefits big business, whether we're talking about an agriculture, construction, um, housekeeping or in these factories where young people are being employed, children being employed to do adults jobs. Thank you, Christina. Thanks so much.
0: Hi, it's Molly, and I am wildly excited. That for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now, is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Corey Robin is a professor of political science at Brooklyn College and author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Welcome to Fast Politics, Corey Robin.
6: Nice to be here.
0: So I wanted to talk to you about the Supreme Court because that's really it's Supreme Court season, right? It
6: is. Yes.
0: It's a silly season. It used to not be that the Supreme Court would just dump all of their controversial opinions and go on vacation.
6: Yeah, no, it's become an annual thing the way to kick off the summer. It's it's interesting.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your favorite and mine. Is it favorite? I think favorite is the wrong word. He's actually the longest serving justice.
6: He is. People don't realize how young he was when he was appointed to the court.
0: We're talking about one Clarence Thomas. Don't I actually do, because when Clarence Thomas was going through the Anita Hill hearings, my grandfather was still alive, Howard Fast, and he was not quite a communist anymore. But both he and my mother were quite enraged with Justice Thomas as a pick, especially because of how young he was.
6: Yeah. And, you know, now he's going to be in a few years, he'll be the longest serving justice in American history. So
0: it's a little ironic because he's the worst. Talk to me about his incredible scandal. I feel like scandal is like not the right word because it's kind of an understatement. Like what's scandal Scandal plus, plus, plus.
6: Well, I mean, as everybody knows now, he's been getting these extraordinary gifts, mostly from Harlan Crows, a real estate tycoon out of Texas, not declaring them and living, you know, a pretty fancy life. But I honestly, I think the bigger scandal is that Thomas, pretty much in his court opinions, going back to the 90s, laid out a roadmap for how and why wealthy people should have access to public officials (laughs) and justified this. (laughs) And, you know, I'm hoping that coming out of this is not only that, you know, these ethics rules get enforced and all the rest of it, but people take a closer look at what Thomas has basically been telling us since he joined the court. Which is what? That wealthy people have a kind of access to public officials that ordinary citizens don't. And not only do they have that access, but they should have that access. And to try to limit them from having that access is to go against the rules of basic democracy. That has been Thomason's (laughs) opinion (laughs) when it comes to campaign finance. And it's, it's a kind of an extraordinary opinion because it basically sets out the rules over the road for for living in an oligarchy.
0: Right. I was on television with someone really dumb and they were like, what we should do is pay each of the Supreme Court justices a million dollars. And I was like, that's really fucking stupid. But it stuck with me because it was so
6: stupid. But, you know, in a way, though, it's it, it tells you that, you know, the kind of sums that we're talking about here, that this is the way people think that you can protect you know, from an oligarchy, it requires a minimum of a million dollar you know salary for a public official. That's how bad things have gotten.
0: Right. First of all, the idea that it's so hard to find people who will serve on the Supreme Court. And thus, you have to pay them. I mean, there are so many parts of this idea that is stupid, right? Yes. Like, I mean, you know, you have a fucking Federalist Society. whose entire goal is to just groom great numbers of young conservatives to be on that said court. So what are the sort of consequences of Clarence Thomas's relationship with Harlan Crow and what it's opened the door to?
6: I think the real problem here is is not the actual relationship between him and Crow. It really is the rightward turn of the court. I mean, you just talked, you know, just now about the Federalist Society. Whether these people are, you know, getting payoffs or not, they are, you know, dedicated to pushing the court in this direction, where the rules of the road, you know, are such that you know, you know men of tremendous wealth have the kind of access, and you know, that ordinary citizens don't. And I think that's really the biggest problem here. I mean, we could talk to we're blue in the face about ethics, reforms and all the rest of it, and it should happen. None of that will undo that pipeline that the, the Federalist Society has created. None of that will undo that. And that's what we're living with. And, and I think really need to focus on.
0: And there is no liberal answer to the Federalist Society.
6: No, no. I mean, historically, We've had reactionary Supreme Courts throughout American history that it's not new, but they've never been undone by a kind of a liberal version of the Federalist Society. It's always been overwhelmingly popular social movements, you know, really cataclysmic social conflicts that have been able to undo the work of a reactionary court. So I think to try to come up with some counterpart to the Federalist Society Liberals and Democrats have been trying to play that game for quite some time. Let's come up with a version of Fox News. Let's come up with a version of X, whatever X is on the right. That's not how you're really going to undo this work that the right has been able to do.
0: Right. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of Republicans trying to cement minority rule.
6: Yes. The first thing to remember is that the Constitution and liberals, I think, have a hard time remembering this because... They have a view of the Constitution that's derived from the 1950s and the 1960s when you had all kinds of civil rights reforms happening and so forth. But the truth is, is that the Constitution already privileges minorities. And by minorities, I don't mean racial and ethnic or gender or sexual minorities. I mean wealthy minorities, uh, people of great property and great wealth. That's baked into the design of the constitution it's why we have things like the senate the electoral college and all the rest of it so you we're already starting from that and the republicans going back to the 1960s have really been slowly trying to undo the progress of the new deal and the great society by things like Turning more power back to the states in terms of control over voting and really creating a kind of, a you know, demographic imbalance that allows for the Republican Party to rule, despite the fact that it doesn't command a majority of support and things of that sort. And this has been going on, you know, it goes back again, like I said, to the 1960s. You know, we think of a lot of the the voting, you know, and election shenanigans as somehow an innovation of Donald Trump, you know, and that's just not the case under Richard Nixon. They started going after voting rights under Ronald Reagan, they did. And so this has really been a long term project.
0: John Roberts has been working on messing with voting rights,
6: too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, John Roberts, he came into the Reagan administration. He was a young lawyer in the Justice Department. He was almost, you know, the kingpin of the effort. I mean, well, first, you know, in Congress, there was an effort to reform the Voting Rights Act in 1982 to make it more progressive. And the Republicans really fought that effort quite a bit. And they lost um, some of that. And so then, comes in John Roberts in the in, in the Justice Department, who starts issuing a stream of memos interpreting the voting rights, really cutting it back. And, you know, not to get too technical or wonky about it, but the linchpin of his effort was to really gut what's called the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which is that whole preclearance where, you know, the Justice Department and the federal government could go in advance and stop local white supremacist efforts, and from the get go, John Roberts saw this as, as something that had to be undone. And he tried to do as much as he could in the Reagan administration and finally had full success once he became chief justice of the Supreme Court. So, again, a very longstanding project. Just sort of one other historical footnote to this, because, again, I think people have a hard time thinking that any of this precedes Donald Trump. One of the first big efforts to, to gut the Voting Rights Act uh, in Congress was led by Gerald Ford in the House of Representatives. People have a much more benign view of Ford as somehow part of this. But they probably shouldn't. Exactly. They should not.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The, The thing I always think about with Trump and Trumpism is that Trump did a lot of the stuff Republicans were quietly doing.
6: Right. But he just did the much louder. I would put it even more strongly than that. He vocalized what they were doing. He put it into words. And that's really the innovation is, is, you know, he just put into speech what had been done, as you say, quietly in practice.
0: Right. I mean, that was sort of Nixonian in a way. But I do think of like the a lot of the Supreme Court stuff we're seeing now was Roberts trying to quietly shift the country with the court. And then all of a sudden you had these Trumpy justices come in and be like, we don't need to be quiet
6: about it anymore. Exactly. And so that's, you know, come back to Clarence Thomas. Thomas was somebody who was always saying the quiet part out loud. Nobody ever paid attention to him because they thought he was not very smart or, you know, they thought he was, you know, Scalia's puppet. But the truth of the matter is he was always the avant-garde, leading the avant-garde on the court. It was an avant-garde of one. And now, you know, he's commanding a majority, which is, you know, truly frightening.
0: Yeah, it is interesting now as we look at the decisions that have come out so far, we had two decisions that were sort of not as insane as a lot of us worried. Tell me what your take on that is. And we're talking about there's a Voting Rights Act that was a little bit you know you can't just completely racistly gerrymander a state and also you know you can't separate and for some reason some baffling reason Gorsuch is good on native american rights but bad on all other rights for all other people.
6: Yeah, I mean the Gorsuch thing is is interesting and I think was was somewhat expected because as you say he's had this you know reputation for quite some time of leading the charge on on Native American rights and has been quite good about that. The voting rights decision was a genuine surprise. I mean, I was shocked by it because while Roberts also has one of these, you know, he's a quieter, gentler reputation. When it comes to voting rights, he has been absolutely ruthless and very clear, as we said just a second ago, The fact that he wrote this decision, it's not just the side that he took, it's the language he used and the arguments he deployed really were surprising. This is the justice who said, if you want to stop discrimination on the basis of race, you have to stop discriminating on the basis of race, which he used against a desegregation effort. He's somebody who has really been, if we want to gut voting rights, if we want to stop affirmative action, all these things, we have to adopt this formally colorblind jurisprudence. And the surprise of that decision is is that he he seemed to really throw that out the window, you know, that you can take race into consideration. It wasn't just the side he took. It was the way he took it was a genuine surprise.
0: What else are you sort of watching now?
6: You know, there's a, a bunch of economic stuff that will be coming down next year. You know, one of the things that really does seem to unite the Republicans on the court, the conservatives, is chipping away at federal administrative agencies. This stuff gets very technical and people get very bored by it, but it really goes to the heart of what the New Deal was all about, which was creating these federal agencies that could interpret their own rules and have a, a certain degree of autonomy. And you know, one of the ways that The conservatives have really gone after the New Deal is to say, no, unless Congress dots every I and crosses every T on some administrative policy, these ag- agencies can't do that. And and they already the, the court already had a case like this involving the National Labor Relations Board, which strangely Kagan and Sotomayor joined the conservatives on. But we're going to see more of that kind of stuff. And, and that to me, I think, is one of the big things to be watching for.
0: Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back.
6: Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And now your moment of fuckery.
0: Do you have a moment of fuckery, my friend?
6: I do
3: have a moment of fuckery. I always have a moment of fuckery. (laughs) Only one moment? My moment of fuckery this week, once again, I'm sorry to say, is going to come back down to Clarence Thomas again. Oh. piece of the New York Times on Sunday reveals that Harlan Crow isn't the only sugar daddy in the Clarence Thomas pantheon of billionaire sponsors, yes, <laughs> and enablers of a lifestyle to which the, the salary of a Supreme Court justice would not ordinarily allow. Look, it's not just Thomas's fault; he should know better. But it's also the court and John Roberts. And if they don't stop the bleeding on these stories, and the reason these stories are happening is not because liberals are out to get Clarence Thomas, it's because Clarence Thomas is living a lifestyle with billionaire donors who are giving him tons of money and travel and goodies and trips, and then having cases and issues come before the Supreme Court. This is a moment of fuckery. I mean, this is a more serious moment of fuckery than I normally will throw out, but I, I really believe that if we let the Supreme Court become tainted by this, this this continued, obvious, painful corruption, that the outcomes will not be a sustained trust in the court at any level in the future. And we need that in this country. We need a court that people can trust again. And they're not going to trust it for a long while because of the current status of how the majority got there. But Clarence Thomas has been on the court now for damn near 35 years and should know better than to be on the take.
0: That's a very good moment of fuckery. And I don't know.
3: And more serious than usual, I'm sorry to say. I mean.
0: Yeah, well, and the Supreme Court is fucked up, man. So my moment of fuckery comes from the internet. And uh, the billionaire, v. billionaire. So Elon bought Twitter for $44 billion. Musk has been delighting and in interacting with libs of TikTok oh, and man. all the right-wing accounts that are his favorite. Now, all of a sudden, you know, because of this rate limit debacle, so during July 4th weekend, for those of you who are not completely online all the time and have actual mm-hmm. lives and families, Elon Musk decided over July 4th weekend that he was going to rate limit how many posts you could read and that this was going to solve data uh, scraping which was the thing that was ruining Twitter. He always, the thing I love about Elon is every like couple weeks, he decides like this is not making money, not because it's never really made money or made great gobs of money, but instead because of data scraping. So he limited the amount of posts you could read and uh, it was called Rate Limit. It turned out to be a debacle because it turns out that people don't want to only be able to read 600 posts. During that time, Mark Zuckerberg Quietly waiting in the wings, decided that he would launch his new Twitter called Threads. Mm -hmm. This was a moment of fuckery. Am I rooting for Mark Zuckerberg? No. Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, involved in genocides, really unhelpful in many, many ways, including the 2016 election, did a lot of bad stuff, but does have some content Moderation, which is a stark contrast from one Elon Musk who has zero content moderation. And when you write to him for a comment, the press department at Twitter, which is now nobody, uh, responds with a poop emoji. And for that, this billionaire v billionaire cage match is my moment of fuckery.
3: I can't blame you on that one at all. (sighs) You know, when you've got people defending Elon, like Cernovich and others, and they're all like trying to get themselves into a lather about a hypothetical cage fight between these guys. (laughs) I mean, look, Mark Zuckerberg signing up for threads. We all knew what we were getting, which was, you know, the rape and and pillage of our privacy at every level. But it's just like the degree to which Elon has psychotically driven Twitter off the cliff is uh, uh, it's inexplicable to me uh, as somebody who I, I generally think of myself as having a, a fairly stable mental view of the universe. But the people around Elon, when we figure this all out in the end, the way they've influenced this guy and the crazies that got into him and gave him the, the MAGA mind virus.
4: <laughs>
3: it's going to cost him billions of dollars to have new friends.
0: Yes, wow. Well, thoughts? Prayers. 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 <laughs> Thank you, Rick Wilson.
3: Anytime. Y'all have a great evening.
0: That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.
4: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a
1: little
2: optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robey, And me, Simone Boyce.